You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Okay, we're starting a new series today. Let's hear for a new series. That's always fun. And uh, so this, we're going to study through the book of First Thessalonians. So if you're new here, normally we sort of teach through books of the Bible, and then we punctuate that in between with sort of series on topics where we looked at specific passages of Scripture to address those topics. Um, so usually we do that between, but here we just went Old Testament to New Testament straight without a break, without one of those sort of topical series in between. And uh, we're calling the series Here and Now, Making Each Day Count as We Await Christ's return. So the return of Christ, a big theme in this book of First Thessalonians. Uh, and yet there is also a call to allow our anticipation of the return of Christ to affect how we live every day, what we do in all of life. That because Christ is returning, uh, we are called to be not those who are uh, failing to pay attention, but we are to be those who are living diligently, honoring the Lord, growing in holiness in all parts of our life. So we're going to see that in the book of First Thessalonians. This, will, uh, this study will take us up till Christmas, up to the Christmas season in the month of December. So if you're new here, you came in right at a great time. My name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you and say thanks for uh, joining us for the study. Today we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 of 1 Thessalonians. That's page 573 in the Bibles in front of you. So if you don't have a Bible, grab one under the seat in front of you, and you can look at page 573. If you have questions that come up during the text, uh, during the sermon, you can, or about the text, you can text. How about that recovery? You can text to the number on the screen, and then um, you can text anonymously there, and we do a podcast during the week where we seek to answer the questions that come up, the topics that you want to talk about uh, from the this passage, we'll talk about that uh, during the podcast this week, and that comes out on Wednesday. Um, okay, let me start with this idea before we jump into the text. That the birth of a church, how a church is born, how it begins, how it launches, affects its early day. It often, its early days, it often shapes the character. How a church is birthed shapes the character of a church. How a church is birthed shapes the questions of the people involved in the church, the kind of teaching that the church receives, the kind of needs and ministry that are a part of the church. How a church is born affects those aspects of its early days. I've had the opportunity to be present at the birth of two churches um, that I was privileged to serve in. One was in San Diego, and one is this church here. And in both cases, I saw how the birth of the church really affected the early days of the church. So uh, in 1995, um, my wife and our three children, we moved to San Diego, California to start a church, and we did so without a team. We had a single lady that uh, moved with us, and so that's kind of called a parachute plant. You sort of just parachute in. We only needed six parachutes, and uh, you began the church. So we began and built the team on the ground in the city, not in the city we came from, but in the city we landed in. So we began to connect with 
you know, uh, friends of friends and that sort of thing and build a team. And it was a slow beginning. It meant that, we, meant that we met in our living room for a long time. So we met in our living room. And because we didn't know anybody, we couldn't trust them with the kids. My wife did the children's ministry by herself every Sunday in our backyard through an entire winter. Welcome to San Diego. Outdoor children's ministry for an entire winter. Uh, and, and that was beautiful. So uh, we were able to do that, but it was just a very small gathering, singing in the living room, teaching in the living room, children's ministry in the back. So wh- how did that affect us? We were desperate. Uh, we didn't know if the church would make it. And so there was very much a lot of teaching on faith and vision and don't despise the day of small beginnings, various verses yanked out of context like that, which became our mantra. And the Lord is building something and doing something, and let's be confident and trust Him and be full of faith. And every week in worship, singing Eye of the Tiger, that God is, it's a, it was a rocky story from first to last. We didn't really sing that. So anyway, it shaped us. It shaped us from the very beginning. Very desperate for God. Are we going to make it? Lord, please show up. When we planted this church, we had a very substantial team. We had nine households that came from that church. That fledgling church ultimately became established. Uh, And then from there, a a decade later, uh, nine families came and helped plant this church. And then other families from other places in the country arrived here to help plant this church. And so we had a substantial team. And uh, we were concerned about gathering as well. But when we were in San Diego with, in the living room, we were, everything was about gathering, 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 gathering folks to build the church. But here we started with a full band and a location to meet in and uh, small group leaders from day one, a few. And so we started very differently in this church. And so though we talked about outreach and that sort of thing from the beginning, we were talking about buildings. As soon as, the, as, soon as I, we put our shingle out, we were talking about building, not structure, but building the congregation together. So we started teaching the book of Ephesians from day one because the book of Ephesians is about the doctrine of the church and building the church and these sort of things. So while we gathered, while we evangelized, while we did outreach, we did other things too. We talked a lot about building the community. So the start of a church really affects the mindset of the people. It really affects what you emphasize, the kind of ministries that you do. So I've had the privilege of being a part of very small and very large in terms of church planting teams, and they were quite different. And so it is with the fledgling church in Thessalonica. That's how I'm going to pronounce it. There are a few people that say Thessalonica, uh, but I grew up saying Thessalonica, and I can't say the other. So I'm going to say that, and if you think Thessalonica, then I'll grate on your nerves for a number of weeks. I'm sorry. So uh, this is the fledgling church in Thessalonica. Um, And when we read of their beginning, we will see all of these themes that come into the letter that Paul addresses because their, their beginning really affected their early days as a church. So their early days as a church are in Acts 17. Acts 17. So if you would keep your finger uh, on the First Thessalonians passage, that's kind of old school if you're using a phone or a tablet or something, but uh, if you would go to Acts 17, we will see how this church was birthed And we'll see from their birth themes that will be through the whole letter. So it'll be instructive for us to understand. So this is Paul's second missionary journey, Acts 17. 
Uh, he's outspreading the gospel in the uh, outside of Jerusalem in the Gentile world at this point. He's in the city, in chapter 17, he's in the city of Thessalonica, which is the capital of a province called Macedonia. So they're all under Roman rule. They're under uh, the rule of Rome, and uh, this is a capital city. More than 100,000 people live in Thessalonica, which is a good-sized city at this time in Macedonia. And so in Acts 17, we see how the church begins. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, "'This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ.'" And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So this is how it all begins. Uh, He's with them about three weeks. It's a pretty quick uh, beginning. He goes into the temple and he begins to teach. And what's the teaching? It's all about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, that he is the one who is the Messiah sent to the Jews. But there are also some Greeks that join in, and uh, it mentions these leading women, which were uh, likely, they could have been Gentile as well. So there's Jews and Gentiles from the very beginning in the church. That tells us something. Uh, Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they uh, formed a mob set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Okay, so now this is, it, 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 it's on. Brand new believers, three weeks or less old, and all of a sudden the Jews who don't believe in Jesus began to persecute this fledgling baby, like baby, baby church in Thessalonica. What do they do? Well, they get some of the guys who are part of the rabble. Uh, how would you like to be in there? Right? Where are you? I'm hanging out with the rabble. Uh, so this, the rabble are just the rabble rousers, you know, the, those, uh, uh, th- those who are of trouble. And uh, they, start, uh, uh, they start an uproar. There's this mob scene where they're going out to grab these new believers. And they can't find them, but they find the guy who was giving them a safe place to stay. So they just grab him this Jason guy, and take him to the authorities. And what do they say before the authorities? When they go before the authorities, uh, they don't say, hey, he's preaching false doctrine about the Messiah. The authorities, that's not their concern. What do they say? These people who have turned the world upside down, they are against Rome. These people are against the decrees of Caesar. These people are leading an insurrection. These people are traitors. They are committing treason. Why? Because they say there's another king. Not Caesar, but they're talking about Jesus as king. 
And so uh, this is a city where the Greco-Roman gods are the, commonly those who are worshipped. Uh, this is also a time when there is imperial worship. Sometimes it's called the imperial cult or imperial worship. It was that Roman citizens uh, or all the people in the Roman provinces were to offer offerings to Caesar and proclaim Caesar is Lord. And these people were saying Jesus is Lord. And so this is the problem. They want them to be in trouble with the authorities Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So they kind of took bail money, uh, posted bail or whatever, let them go. We don't know if they ever got that money back, but that was the kind of things that were going on. So you see how the church is born. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So they have to sneak out of town after just a few weeks. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. So uh, they go to start a church in Berea, teaching them the scripture. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women and high standing, of high standing and men as, as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, now this just shows how upset they were, when the Jews of Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is how bad it was in Thessalonica, that we kicked you out of our town, but we're still so mad at the trouble you caused, we're going to the next town, and we're going to agitate and stir up everybody there as well. This gives a window into the heat that this church was born in. So Paul goes to Athens, it says. Then if you, try, if you go to chapter 18, we won't look at it, but he goes to Corinth. And while he is at Corinth, uh, it says uh, that at that point, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. So Silas and Timothy come in. We know that they bring him a report. And so scholars believe that this letter of 1 Thessalonians that we're studying was written while Paul was in Corinth. He had gotten a report on how the church was doing from Silas and Timothy, and then he writes them. So this was probably, scholars say, because of some references in Corinth, A.D. 50 or 51, about around 50. It's one of the first writings of the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians is. And, and what we know, because he gets this report and then writes it, what we know is that the church he's writing to is likely months old, not years old. So they're not celebrating their 14th anniversary. They are celebrating months. Now, with that as a background, that's their birth. Persecution, chaos, agitation, rejection. Uh, they're, they're, they're resisted by the Jews, and now they're resisted by the Gentiles as well because it's reported that they are worshiping another king besides Caesar. So here we go, 1 Thessalonians 1 through 5. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, 
grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. The Thessalonians had a disorienting experience as new believers, as a new church. I mean, they're going from happy people down at the synagogue to now saying our own people want us arrested. This would likely have meant expulsion potentially from your family, from your job, from your livelihood, rejected, now officially persecuted by the government. How does God reorient them? They're, from a, they're, they're disoriented by all this. Months they've been Christians. The heat has been on them. What does Paul say to them to reorient them from this position of disorientation. Well, he calls them to look at God. And in the passage we just read, he gives them this very God-centered view of the church. He wants them to take their eyes off what's going on around them. He wants to take their eyes off the problems they face, and he wants them to be aware of God, God's presence, God's work, and he wants to build their confidence in God. John Stott says about the passage we just read, you would expect the Thessalonian, well, he's talking about the Thessalonian church, you would expect it to be a very wobbly church in a very precarious condition. But no, Paul is confident about it because he knows it is God's church and because he has confidence in God. The opening message to the Thessalonians is just that. This is God's church, and you can have confidence in God. He is saying to them, in essence, listen, church, in the chaos, remember that you are God's church. This is so securing. And he makes three points, I believe, in the passage we just read that would secure them in the truth that in the midst of trouble, you are God's church. The first idea that he presents is this that the church is in God. The church is in God. He begins with an unusual greeting. Normally, when Paul writes a letter to a church, he addresses them in the city they live. He locates them geographically. So letters begin with phrases like this, to the church in Corinth. Or uh, the Philippians letter begins like this, to the saints at Philippi. So normally he's saying that you are the people of God in the location that you live, and he ties the church to its location. He does something very different here. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To the church of the Thessalonians in God. To a persecuted people, he starts by saying, your identity is not that you are the church in Thessalonica, but that you are the church in God. 
Your mailing address may be Thessalonica, but you exist in God. Do you remember Rob's illustration last week? This was perfect timing that he did this illustration last week. Do you remember his illustration where he had the large plastic storage boxes? If you weren't here, they were labeled. And he was trying to show, uh, not trying, he was capably showing, uh, our relationship to God in union with God. And the grand finale of the show, he kept walking behind the panel and coming out with amazing stuff. And so the grand finale was when he came out and he had the big box that said God. And he had already shown us a box that said you, a clear box that said you, and a clear box that said Christ. And he put you in Christ, and he put the Christ box in God. And so it was you in Christ and in God the Father. And he made this comment. He said, can you imagine a safer place? That is exactly what Paul is communicating here. This church is vulnerable, and they are aware of their vulnerability. So from the beginning, he is pointing them to their security, and he is saying, you are in God the Father. You are in the Lord Jesus Christ, just as Rob illustrated last week. You are in God. And it's not just that you are in God the Father or you are in Jesus, but you are in the Lord Jesus. Now again, this contrasts radically with what we read in Acts 17. There, everybody is under Caesar the Lord. They are saying there's another king, Jesus. Now when we read Lord Jesus, that just sounds like religious lingo to us. We just think, oh yeah, that's like one of his names, Lord Jesus. Uh, but Lord means that he is king, that he is ruler, that he is sovereign. So from the very beginning, Paul is reminding them that, that just as the common confession in your culture is Caesar is Lord, you confess Jesus is Lord, and you are actually in that king. You are in him. Well, what does that mean? Well, think about what Jesus said back in John 15. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. You are in me. What does that mean? It's like branches in a vine that with apart from me, you cannot bear fruit. That's the picture that, that Jesus gives in John 15 when he teaches what it means to be in me. To be in me means I'm your source of strength. It means that I am uh, your I'm your, you get your spiritual nutrients from me. You grow connected to me. So there's certainly a picture of protection, but there is also a picture of vital union. You are alive in me. You live through me. You have power uh, for following me that comes from your connection to me. Very different than Caesar. So they are not merely citizens of Thessalonia, Thessalonica suffering under an earthly government, they are part of a new kingdom and they are connected to that king. Uh, chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 12 says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. He's called you into his kingdom. So you're in this new kingdom now. And you in this new kingdom aren't just living under a government, under a king, or for us, under a president. You are vitally connected to this king. And you're actually receiving your life from this king. You're actually protected by this king. It's an amazing picture. It's not just some, some loose greeting. 
hey, y'all. No, he is, it is dense theologically, and it is dense in a way that communicates something of hope to this church. Living in America today is nothing like living in Thessalonica in A.D. 50, if you're a believer in Jesus. There's certainly a note of panic in much evangelical writing today that we in this culture, the church is losing ground and will very soon be experiencing significant persecution. I'm not a prophet. I can't say whether that will or will not happen. It certainly appears that the church is um, eroding in influence in this country in many ways, and it certainly appears that the culture uh, is growing uh, you know, in a way that opposes the gospel. I don't know what the future holds. But I do know what Paul, as a pastor, says to those who have it far worse than we can imagine. You take your most fearful, panicky <clears throat> kind of writing out there, and they have it worse than that. And this is what he says to them. Here's the first thing I want you to know. You're cared for by God. You are in God. You are protected by God. You are drawing life from King Jesus. This is the first thing. Paul doesn't seem panicked at all. By the way, you will not read the New Testament and find people panicked by the, by the stuff that panics so many in our culture. He would rather say, look to God. Don't, don't listen to fear mongers. Look to God. Whether they, what they prophesy is true or not true, it won't matter. You are in God. That's where you rest your hope. You, the church, are his church. And what we'll see next week is that you are in him and your witness is spreading. I pray there's no persecution. I don't want persecution. I don't look for persecution. But if the New Testament tells me anything, it is that the church always grows best in difficult times. The light always shines brightest in the darkness. That is the story of the New Testament. The light doesn't always shine bright in the light. They are cared for by God. This is what he tells this church. You're connected to God. The church is in God. Number two, God is in the church. God is in the church. Now, Paul doesn't use that language, but that's the point of verses two and three. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So why do I say he's saying here God is in the church? Well, here's why. Because he's saying, remember how, God, remember how you were changed, and he says, I thank God for that. We give thanks to God for you all constantly. We thank God when we remember you. Why? Because your lives were changed. Why? Because God changed your lives. That's what's implicitly being communicated. God did this. <clears throat> God has changed you, and we can't get over it. We are constantly thanking God for you when we remember you. We came in and preached the gospel, and God turned you upside down, and you believed, and you were radically changed, and it has cost you. And so we thank God for you. We remember your, what, work of faith. He's not saying that you did good works and earned your relationship with God. He's saying your faith produced work in you. Because of your faith in Christ, you did good works. 
not to earn his favor, but because you had already received his favor. You, you were new believers, but you instantly started doing good works, your work of faith, your labor of love. You started loving others from the beginning. It wasn't a convenient love. It was a sacrificial love. It was a labor to love. God worked in you so that you loved in a new way, not with convenience, but with costliness. You also lived with a steadfast hope, an enduring hope, we could say. You lived with a steadfast hope. It says, we remember your steadfast hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's doing is he's saying, look, here's what we remember about being with you that brief time. It was evident that you were changed. You were working. You were loving. You were hoping. These are signs of grace. They are markers of the Spirit. They are pointing, he's pointing out evidences of God in their midst to boost their confidence that they really are Christians. I mean, can you imagine how maybe you would wrestle with assurance of your faith in this context? Trust Jesus. He's Lord. He's God. Uh, he's glorious. He gives new life. He gives forgiveness of sins. Yes, sign me up. You know, he does say, take up your cross and follow me. Yes, sign me up. Boom. Mobs are attacking, trying to yank believers out of houses who are turning the world upside down. That's disorienting, disillusioning. Oh, wow. I mean, maybe I'm not even sure that I do. Is this even real? I believe in Jesus, and now my life has gone down the two. Life's way more difficult as a believer in Jesus. Is this even real? He's saying, hey, remember what happened. I'm thanking God for what he did in you. He did wonderful things. Just look back. It is real. He, you have assurance based on what God did in you. Now, you'll notice here that there are three signs that they are <clears throat> believers that God has worked in them. They're familiar signs if you've read the New Testament. Faith, love, and hope. Here's what's unusual. That usually when those, that triad, those three um, sort of virtues are together, they're not in that order. Usually it's faith, hope, and love, and then the accent is on the preeminence of love. Faith, hope, and love, and 1 Corinthians 13 says, and the greatest of these is love. But here it's not the greatest that's love. Here it's hope that comes last. Faith, love, and hope. Hope is prominent as the last virtue here. Why? Because hope is what they need most at this time. From the very beginning, this church needs hope. And as we get deeper into this letter, what we're going to see is that the hope he is referring to is the hope of Christ's return. I remember your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. And we're going to see that what they really had a hope for was his return. It's a, it's a significant theme that will recur throughout the book. God not only wants them to look at what Christ has done in the past, he wants them to look at what he's done in the present, but he ultimately wants them to look at Christ's return and to anticipate that return. Christ's return is mentioned at the end of every chapter of this book. Now, the chapter markings weren't original. They're not original to Paul. They were added later. But there, it's at the end of every chapter. Look, look with me, chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're waiting for Jesus to come. Chapter 2, verse 19. End of chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus 
at his coming. Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Chapter 3, verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness, before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The coming of the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 16. Chapter 4, 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Will, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we'll always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So when the Lord returns, this is what will happen. Chapter 5, verse 23, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You won't find another letter except 2 Thessalonians. You won't find another letter uh, written to a local church in the New Testament that talks more about the coming of the Lord. So this is their hope. It's a book about hope. And I hope this study will, will show us how to be motivated by the imminent return of Christ. It's really easy to sort of swing to one side or the other when we think about the return of Christ. Some of the Thess- Thessalonians have been focused on his return. And what we're going to find out is that they're not really being responsible in their daily lives because they think he's coming soon and they are waiting for him. And that, that can happen sometime today with people too. A lot of people can give in to all kinds of end times speculation. Just get engulfed in it. There, there's all kinds of stuff. You just got to Google some of this on the internet. I wouldn't recommend it, but you just have to Google some of it. And, and people get captivated by end times, the return of Jesus. And oftentimes in, in our country, it's the kind of biblical prophecy that has America at the center of the story. Um, and looks to find America in the Bible uh, and pointing to various things. So they spend all kinds of emotional energy and time absorbed in prophetic speculation, and it distracts from the callings God has given us in the here and now. That's the series, here and now. We're going to see in this letter, this is what we're to live, expecting Christ to return. But basically, he's going to say, work your job, love your family, live a quiet life, serve your neighbor, anticipate his return. He is coming. He'll come when he wants. He's just saying, you just be faithful in anticipation. So that, that's one side. On the other side are Christians who are sometimes in, in, in response to that, but Christians who are so rooted in today, so burdened by today, so consumed with themselves and their world and their daily affairs that they rarely consider Christ's return. They don't think about Christ's return at all. Unless we're on a specific scripture, it never occurs that Christ is going to return. And so they don't live the kind of lives of urgency and pressing on in holiness as we await his return. See, what we see in Thessalonians is that that, uh, that the return, this sort of hope, God is working hope in the church, God is in the church, that this kind of hope, this kind of looking out in front of us is to motivate us forward in Christ. Uh, our youngest grandson, <clears throat> who is chunky and cute, uh, has the gift of being still. And if you've had children, that is a gift. I mean, that is an absolute gift. He's very young. Uh, but I noticed when he would be sitting still, 
content, the gift of contentment, beautiful thing. And while he would be content that once he's, you could tell he wanted to start moving, start making some motions to crawling, the way to get him to really get moving was to put a toy in front of him that he likes, that would appeal to him, and then he would see it and focus on it and get moving. Start crawling, start moving, start doing motions he hadn't done, maybe even before, to reach for that toy that he wanted to grasp. That's a simple illustration, but that's how the return of Christ is presented in this book and is held out for Christians, that we need to keep something in front of us, focusing, dazzled, amazed, that causes motion in the here and now, that causes movement, that causes me forward, that causes me not to sit still, but to be moving forward to that which draws me, Jesus Christ and his return, when we will see him face to face, when he will come and establish a new heavens and a new earth, we, we don't just say, oh yeah, that's coming, no big deal. We also don't just live in speculation, so we're not moving, we're just speculating rather than moving. Rather, we look at that truth, we look at our Savior, we anticipate him, and we move forward urgent in mission, telling the gospel to people. Why in the pastoral prayer are we praying for all these young people and them hearing the gospel, because Christ is returning, or they're dying, whichever comes first. Why are we building the church and investing our lives in this local church? Because the church is in God? Yes. Because God is in the church? Yes. But because we're motivated by the hope of Christ's return, which says, my lifestyle matters, my holiness matters, my following Jesus matters, prayer matters, work matters, my marriage matters, my friendships matter, my health matters. All of life matters because he's returning and we're moving towards him, growing in holiness as his bride, ready to meet him face to face. It doesn't cause us to check out and it shouldn't cause us endless distracting speculation about marks of the beast and all this kind of thing where we're just, where we're just not living the life he's called us to because we're living in the clouds somehow. Do you see that? Holding out a vision moves us forward just like a toy for a young, child, young baby learning to crawl. One of our greatest hopes in this study is that it will function, the return of Christ. I want this for my life, that the return of Christ will begin to function more in my life as it should and in our church as it should. The tagline of the series is making each day count as we await through Christ's return or something very close to that not close to his return, close to that line. <clears throat> Last, God loves the church. This is very brief. We are in God, God is in the church, and God loves the church. In the uncertainty and in the chaos of Thessalonica, what does he say to the church? That's why it's so important. What, is he, what does he want them to know? You're in God, God is in you, he's done something in you, remember it, he's with you. And verse four, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you it's the same verb translated elsewhere, elected. He has elected or chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. What's he saying? He's saying, if you're shaky, if the church is shaky, if it's uncertain, if it's fearful, if it's chaotic, remember this, God loves you, God picked you. Whoa, who knew the doctrine of election would be used this early in the letter, like, isn't that controversial, and don't we debate that, and haven't whole, whole denominations split over that? Isn't that, don't you not really talk about that kind of stuff, because we can't understand it? Well, we can't fully understand it, but he talks about it from the gate, 
You want to know in a troubled time, you want to be secure in something, be secure in this, that God shows you, that he set his love on you, that he set his affection on you. This is a great example of how the doctrine of election functions in the Bible. It doesn't function as a topic for debate or as an item to divide on. In the Bible, it functions as a comfort. It functions as an assurance. It functions as a profound encouragement. Can these months-old believers fully explain and understand all the nuances of how divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together? Absolutely not. Scholars who've known Christ decades can't fully, ex- can't fully explain that, but you don't have to know, understand every detail of that to relish and to cherish the glory of that doctrine that I am loved that we are loved, that God chose us just as he looked over the whole world, passed over everybody, and chose Abraham, just as he built the nation of Israel, and they were his treasured possession among all the nations. We can look and say the church of Jesus Christ is the chosen people. We are God's people who are loved by him. That's a comfort. He says, listen, how do you know you're elect? He says, I know this. Paul knows this. Wow. Paul knows this, that you, we know, brothers, loved by God, he's chosen you. How does he know that? Because our gospel came to you not in word, but in power and in Holy Spirit and full conviction. Okay, the room's full of people. I preach the gospel, Paul says. Here's how I know you were chosen by God. Here's how I know he loves you, because you responded. Somebody else heard it, and it was just words. You heard it, and the power of the Holy Spirit gave you deep conviction. The doctrine of election is not something that's preached when we announce the gospel, so to speak. It's the interpretation of what happened when someone did believe. So when someone believes, we just preach the gospel and say, believe in Jesus. If they do, then this is what we say. God showered his love on you. God opened your eyes. God gave you life. God chose you, is what it says here. He chose you. He's saying, listen, Thessalonians, the only explanation for your opened eyes, the only explanation for your believing heart, the only explanation for your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope, the only explanation for any of this is that you were loved, you were chosen, your lives have been changed by Jesus, and you are safe in him, in his kingdom, in the here and now while you await his return. This is what he says to them. The church is in God. God is in the church. God loves the church. God cares about the church. God cares about us. We're not enduring situations like they are. We may, some of us individually are, enduring persecution, opposition, cost. Someone may have have cost you your job. It may have cost you a relationship. It may have cost you standing in your family. It may have cost you reputation. So some of us are experiencing resistance and pushback for standing with Jesus. But as a church as a whole, we're not like they were. But the good news is that whatever we're facing, whatever kind of chaos, whatever kind of trouble, God loves us. God loves the church. God loves the church. Do you share God's heart for the church? I came away with this saying, if this is how God feels about this people, if this is how God feels about his people, how do I feel about his people? Do I invest my time, my money, my resources, my effort, my prayers, my service to be a part of what God is doing? Acts 17, they were accused of turning the world upside down. Those weren't consumer Christians, sort of complacent, check in when I can, when it's convenient, I'll believe. That's not that kind of Christian. 
These were people that were invested. You don't turn the world upside down if you are not invested in Jesus and his people and willing to pay a price. They're concerned. They're trying to do the same thing. They're trying to turn our city upside down. Would anybody say that about me? He's so radical for the Lord. He's trying to turn this place upside down. Would anybody say that about us? May they say that about us. May they say that about me. That God cares about the church and I care about what he cares about. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope of the world. And he's chosen all kinds of people. I don't know how that all works in detail. I'm not God, but I know when we preach the gospel, when we share our faith, he does give new life to those he has chosen. That's what I know. So we can do it confident. Paul wants the Thessalonians to be confident in hard times. And that confidence is rooted in this. The church is in God, protected by God, drawing life from the King Jesus. Jesus. God is in the church, making dead people alive and giving them works of faith, labors of love, and steadfastness of hope. And keep that hope going because he's returning. And lastly, God loves the church. The proof, he chose you. The proof he chose you, you heard the gospel and believed. That's enough to sustain a people that are in a shaky situation. That's more than enough to sustain us. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.